Veterans Affairs officials say their pause on that new electronic health record will probably continue for much of next year. And that's frustrating to members of Congress who say the VA has just too little to show for the project, five years and billions of dollars into it. But VA officials say future EHR rollouts will go a lot more smoothly eventually once it works out all of the bugs. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. This thing's been on pause more than they've had rollouts. And they're talking about now into calendar next year. Yeah, there have been a number of pauses in the rollout of this new Oracle Cerner electronic health record. It's gone through all sorts of problems. It's run into all sorts of issues. But what we've heard from VA officials, they told members of the House Appropriations Committee that summer of 2024 is when we might see these go-lives to go forward. This has been a reset that has been in place since April of this year so that they can untangle some of the problems with this Oracle Cerner EHR system. They are trying to deal with VA employees who are giving this low usability scores. They are dealing with outages that have completely shut down the EHR and degradations that have really slowed it down. And so we heard from Neil Evans, who is the acting program executive director of the EHR Modernization Integration Office. He says summer 24 is a rough estimate, but there's even then not a clear timeline of what would go forward next. We are making progress, and yet there's still more work to be done before we'll be ready to publish a new schedule and proceed with deployments across the rest of the VA healthcare system. Well, that's not saying too much, except that they're way behind and are continuing to be behind. How far behind, actually, from the original schedule is this? For some context here, the Oracle Cerner EHR is currently running at five small and medium-sized VA medical facilities. Full deployment would bring this to 170 VA sites. And given the schedule that had been in place before all these resets and all these pauses, it should currently be going on at 70 sites across the VA network. So it's only at a fraction of where it really should be in place right at this point. And at those places, they're still having problems, right? They were having clinical issues. They were having integration issues. And also user experience was kind of negative because people had get stuck trying to do the functions that was presented to them. That's actually the key criteria of what would allow this project to move forward is that those usability scores at the sites already using the new EHR have to improve before they decide to keep this project going forward. And meanwhile, their legacy system, Vista, which has been running for 40 years now, what's the status of that? They've got to keep that running too in in the meantime. They have to keep it running longer than they initially expected. Vista has at least another five or 10 years in its lifespan, given the delays that we've seen with the Oracle Cerner EHR system. It's in a lot of ways the polar opposite. It's a legacy system. It's been around for about 40 years at some sites. It's popular with VA clinicians who use it. There's a high degree of customizability to that system, given whatever site it's in place at. And they've had to modernize it beyond its useful life here. Evans says that despite all of these things, Vista won't be able to support the VA's long-term healthcare needs and that the Oracle Cerner EHR is the way to go. We don't want to stay in reset forever. In fact, I would argue that we're at higher risk the longer we maintain a healthcare system that's running two different electronic health record systems. And no thought of dropping the Cerner Oracle and just updating Vista. No, at this point, they say that the Oracle Cerner system is the way they need to go. They see that customizability Vista as a negative. They say that there should be a consistent process across the entire VA system. All right. They're going ahead with this Cerner product acquired by Oracle until the spring of 24. 
is when they're saying we're middle of 24. Is that how long it's going to take to get it to work? How will they know when it's working properly and they can go ahead and deploy it? One key thing to look forward to here is in March of next year. That is when the EHR will go live at a joint VA DOD healthcare facility. This is something that is unique to the EHR go live. This is something that has been more successful on the DOD side of things. They are rolling out the same EHR as VA. And so if this goes successfully, VA officials say that this is a sign that the Oracle Cerner system can go live at large complex facilities. It's only been at the small and medium ones so far. And one other thing here is that Oracle is taking an active role in making sure that it's addressing all the bugs that it's supposed to. Mike Cecilia, the executive vice president of Oracle Global Industries, says that once all those bugs are addressed, that EHR go lives can happen at a much faster pace. Once we begin deploying again, we should be able to speed deployments. As I've said, to do so will require achieving a repeatable model during the reset. Not only will this minimize costs and allow more predictable, timely deployments, but it will also allow VA to achieve a consistent provider and veteran experience and quality of care across its system. Yeah, and they've been saying that for five years now. So how much more money is VA asking for at this point? For fiscal 2024, spending that lawmakers are trying to hash out now, the VA is asking for nearly $1.9 billion for this EHR. Lawmakers were scratching their heads a bit about why they're asking for so much given this reset that's going to be going on for quite some time. VA officials said that they do need a long runway. There's a lot of prep work that needs to happen before they even begin to get these go lives going again. But that is a hard thing for some lawmakers to accept. One of the members of the Appropriations Committee, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, himself a veteran, said that this is too little to show for this much spending. And he did say that lawmakers are considering cutting the HR funding given the performance. There absolutely needs to be an urgency in fixing this issue. What if we cut funding? Would that light a fire? What if uh, next year was uh, zero? Would that light a fire? Or put out a fire. Yeah, that's pretty tough language there. So what else do we need to look forward to here, Jory? Well, one thing that has changed recently is that the VA has renewed its contract with Oracle Cerner for this EHR system. They had the first five years behind them. They now have this new contract in place for another five years. But as opposed to a block five-year contract, this is going to be something that they will go back to the negotiating table on every year going forward. And so they'll be able to renegotiate uh, different terms every year. They've already put in higher financial penalties for Oracle Cerner if these outages and these degradations continue to happen. Yeah, you really wonder because this was a commercial product that was going to simply be adapted to VA. And it sounded simple because it was a product that's deployed in millions of other workstations at hospitals, you know, in the commercial sector. So interesting that it's been so tough to deploy in VA. We don't know too much about the details of the problems, though, do we? That's the thing that is the big question behind this is that DOD has been rolling out the system much faster and much more easily than the VA has been able to. Uh, They had some initial hiccups, but they are just having a better go at this. And also the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is also going to be a party to this EHR. What VA officials are saying is that this is not just a VA EHR. This is a federal EHR that a lot of agencies are joining on to. So VA is unique in its problems in this go live. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay, Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know and I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.